invite you to keep your Bibles open to Genesis and the 13th chapter as we examine together this passage that was read in your hearing this morning. Just a little context for us in the book of Genesis, which you well know opens your Bible. It is the book of beginning. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis cover about 2,000 years of human history. And then you get to chapter 12, and running all the way to the end of the 22nd chapter, you have about 25 years of history. What that tells us is that the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Moses, has covered a great deal of ground in these first sections of Genesis, and now we come to the life of a man named Abram, and the scene slows down significantly. Because how God interacts with this man and how this man responds to God is very telling and very important. It's critical to our understanding as believing people. It's critical to the original audience that heard these words. Who was that original audience? They were people who had just left Egypt. and They were now traveling in a desert area looking for a land of promise, promised to them by God. A future was before them, but it was a future that in many ways was still uncertain. And so the Lord picks up on this life of a man named Abram and pulls him out as an example for these people and gives them instruction regarding some very important things. And what the Lord really focuses our attention on in this chapter, chapters 12 and 13 and really running all the way through chapter 19 are the importance of life choices. We have two individuals that are really set in contrast to one another to demonstrate the choices that they make and how those choices lead to very different ends. And so this morning I want to preach to you on this topic as we look to the new year of life choices. What kind of choices are before you? And what helps us in making wise life choices? Let's pray and ask God to help us see these things clearly from his word, shall we? Lord, we're glad to be in your house today among your people and friends that are with us. Lord, as we consider the end of a year, and the opening of another. Would you help us this morning to really think of ourselves in this text and to know that this year, though involving many choices, those choices will be based upon our true heart condition before you. And that this next year would be a year that demonstrates a heart that is centered on you, a heart of worship, And Lord, that by this time next year, we would each say that through this season, we have grown in our faith, we have grown in our confidence in you, and we have grown in our likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And would you use this time to challenge us in that way? For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In the game of chess, 
there are a number of possible moves that occur throughout the game. But on average, those who know chess well say that when it comes to individual players, on average there are about 20 possible moves someone can make each time they choose to make the next move. However, the total possible moves after just three plays by each individual can result in over 120 million unique positions. That means if you're playing chess, I move three times, you move three times, the possibility from those choices is over 120 million. That's why I've been told that no computer today can actually play the perfect game of chess because the unique positions are so many it can't calculate it. Now imagine that is a chess board. Limited board, limited number of pieces, limited number of moves. What about the choices of your life in 2024? How many choices will you be faced with? And what are the possible unique positions that those choices will leave you in? Certainly, if it's incalculable on a limited chessboard, well, that's beyond human comprehension. Nevertheless, the choices that you make in the following year will be essential and critical to the positions you end up in. What are those choices that you might face in 2024? I'm sure they are unique among us. However, there might be some major choices among us. What will you major in? Who will you marry? What occupation will you pursue? What doctor will you choose? What treatment will you choose? Some of those decisions might be rather small and somewhat insignificant. Where will you go for dinner? Regular or decaf? How will you spend your time? But all of those choices will have some kind of influence, some kind of influence upon you personally. And as someone has wisely said, it's often that large doors swing on small hinges. And it's often a series of small choices will open or close doors for our future. And therefore, it's very important how and why we make certain choices. As I mentioned, Genesis was written to people who were facing important choices about their future. These people had been delivered by God from Egypt. They were now headed toward the promised land. What would that future look like? Well, it's interesting. If you read the law of God, the first five books of your Bible, God continually challenges these people with choices. He says things like, choose, decide, what will you do? But these choices that God is challenging these people with are not of the smaller sort or even the mundane. What sandals will you wear? What sheep will you shear? What road will you travel? The choice that God lays before his people and the choice that God would lay before us in the new year are at the heart level. They are choices like this. Who will you obey? 
who or what will you love? Most importantly, who or what will you worship? Because it's those choices at the heart level that influence all of those other choices. It trickles down into all the way that we view life and the decisions that we make as God's people. And so here in Genesis in chapters 13 to 19, you really have an illustration of important choices. As I said, you have two men that are set up in contrast. These men are both believers. It's almost hard to imagine when you read of one of them, Lot, and we would assume that he certainly is not a God-fearing man were it not that Peter tells us he was a righteous man in 2 Peter. So you have two believing men. They're from the same family. They have similar backgrounds. They have both left Ur of the Chaldees, as it were, and were now traveling as Bedouins in a strange land. Abram and Lot are their names. However, the choices that they make are quite different. And the end results of those choices could not be in greater contrast. What are these choices that these men make? Well, this morning we're going to look at these two men, and we're going to note through Abram that Abram makes the choice to live a god centered life of worship, while Lot chooses to live a self-centered life of pleasure. And these are set in contrast in the text. I'll demonstrate that for you in a moment. As we examine these two individuals, I want to ask you to ask yourself, what is the trajectory of my life? What am I looking forward to in 2024, and what will influence all of these choices before me? Is it a God-centered life of worship that will filter down and influence all of those decisions? Or is it primarily a self-seeking, self-centered life of pleasure that will choose? And what will be the result? begin with this morning, I want us to note the choice to live a God-centered life of worship. This is the life of Abram. And what I find really encouraging in the text is that Abram is not perfect. None of us are. In other words, we're not talking about a choice to either be perfect or imperfect. We're talking about a disposition of the heart to please God or please self. Abraham's disposition is to please the Lord, but he doesn't do so perfectly. And that is very clear in the text. However, here's what is repeatedly said about this man. Notice chapter 12, and look with me at verse 7. After God makes promises to Abram, verse 7 of chapter 12, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land So he built there an altar to the Lord. And now go down to verse 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now look at chapter 13 and verse 4. 
Abraham returns to this place, and we're told he returned to the place where he had made an altar at first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And if you look all the way down at the end of chapter 13 and verse 18, it says at the end, he built an altar to the Lord. This is repeatedly said of this man. Through all of his journey, he's building an altar. He's calling upon the Lord. This is his choice. This is his lifestyle. This is what he's seeking. He's seeking worship of God. He's seeking relationship with God. He's seeking leading from God. That's one man's position. And then notice this of the other man. Very simply put, look at chapter 13 in verse 11. So Lot chose what? Lot chose what? For himself, and it goes on to say he chose a particular place for himself. But the text is indicating that that Lot's primary choice is this. It's about what is best for Lot. And that's driving his choices. And so you can see this contrast that is laid out in the text. It is a man that is choosing to sacrifice and worship. And it's a man that is choosing to live for himself. That's why I said you have this contrast of the self-centered life of worship or or the the God-centered life of worship or the self-centered life of pleasure. Now, here's what's fascinating. Abraham typifies this God-centered life of worship. The beginning of chapter 12 and the first five verses, God makes a covenant with Abram. He calls him out of the land of Ur. He says, follow me into this new land. I will bless you and make your name great. And Abraham gets up and he does that. He makes a significant decision to leave all that was familiar and he follows God to a very strange place. And you would think at that point, fantastic. This guy is making a right choice. The God-centered life of worship, it must all be roses. Now everything goes right for him. However, notice what it says, verse 8. We read this at the end of the verse. He built an altar to the Lord, called upon the name of the Lord, and Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. That's the south. Now verse 10. Now there was a what? A famine in the land. The God-centered person faces common problems of life. Even though somebody decides in their heart, I will live for the Lord, I will do what pleases Him, that doesn't insulate them from common problems of life. A famine was a serious thing. It was a serious thing in a place that was often dry, without rain. It was serious uh, in, in a place that was Uh, necessary to feed cattle and and many livestock. And so what does Abram do at this point when he is faced with the test of famine? Well, we read in verse 11 that he went down to Egypt. Now, was it right for Abram to go to Egypt? Well, it seems like a logical decision. Egypt had the Nile, and there would have been a fertile place for him to water his animals and his herds. Commentators are divided as to whether or not Abram made the right decision at this point. Should he have stayed in the land and trusted God? 
Or was it okay for him to go to Egypt? We can't be certain one way or the other. One thing we can be certain of is what happened in Egypt was wrong. And what happened in Egypt? Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. Abram speaks to his wife Sarai and he says, You're beautiful in appearance in verse 12. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake. What happened in Egypt certainly wasn't right concerning Sarai. Abram sells out his wife. It's a deplorable thing that he does. And again, the writer of Genesis assumes that you've read the whole book up to this point, and it's not unlike the way that Adam sells out his own wife in the Garden of Eden. That Adam didn't protect Eve from the serpent himself in that conversation. And here you have this contrast of the seed of the the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here Pharaoh represents the seed of the serpent. And Abram sells out his wife again to the seed of the serpent. And it's painted very bleakly in the text that this is Abram's failure in the test of famine. He should have trusted God, but he didn't. Nevertheless, God is gracious. And God is merciful even when we fail. And we're told in verse 17 of chapter 12 that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife, So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And here's what's fascinating. The original audience reading this book, they would have put themselves right in the text at this point. Why? We read about Pharaoh and plagues, and Abram leaving Egypt with great wealth. And here's where the original audience picks up the story and says, this is us. And here's where it is, you this morning, standing at the head of 2024, a future before you in a land of great plenty. What will you choose? And notice what Abram does. He's actually faced with another test. But look at chapter 13. We come into our text now. And notice it says in verse 2 that Abraham returned to the place that he had left between Bethel and Ai. Verse 4, it was the place where he'd made an altar at first. So Abram has lapsed in his faith, faced with the test of famine. Now he comes back to the very place he built that altar, committed himself to the Lord, and he's faced with another test. What is the test this time? It's in verse 2 that Abram is very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Abraham faces a test of famine and he fails. Now he faces a test of riches and of great wealth. And it is a test. Many of you are saying, that's a test I'd like to have, right? Well, we have a tendency to think that the increase of wealth and stuff creates happiness, resolves conflict, eases pressure, but in fact, the opposite is often true. How many families have been divided over the inheritance of a fortune? Once someone passes off the scene, the 
underlying tension in family members becomes a great squabble and separates families. Abraham is going to deal with family strife, and there is no strife like family strife. And Abraham is facing this strife because of wealth and because of riches. And so how does a God-centered man respond in this case? Well, the God-centered person does not worship wealth or worry about famine. Look at what he does, 13.8. Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Here, Abram shows an amazing trust in God. They're looking south from Bethel. It's the Negev. That's the term south in the scripture. It's a very desert area. And Abraham looks at this area that way that looks unpromising. He looks to the east and he sees the well-watered plain of Jordan. And he, in his mind, knows which of those is the better logical choice. And Abram, being the elder, he is Lot's uncle, could easily have taken the primacy and said, Lot, I'll choose, and you'll get what's left over. But instead, Abram trusts in God's provision. And he says, Lot, you make the choice. And what Abram is saying by that is, God's going to provide for me either way. I'm not worried about wealth. I'm no longer worried about famine. God will take care of me. You decide what you would like to do. We see this attitude again. How do we know this is Abram's attitude? We see it again. You don't need to turn there, but in chapter 14 and verses 17 to 24, in chapter 14 we read of of kings that come and take captive Lot and Sodom. And Abram goes on this uh, rescue mission, and he rescues Lot from these uh, kings that have come through and captured the people. And he brings them back to Sodom. And there's a priest of the Lord named Melchizedek that meets him. And it would have been right for Abraham to take all the spoil of that captivity and take it to himself. And Abram instead says, I don't want any of the wealth. I don't need any of the wealth. In fact, he offers part of it as a sacrifice to God in acknowledgement that God supplies his needs. He's not responsible for that. God is. And therefore he offers part of that, a tenth of his wealth to Melchizedek, this high priest. And so Abram demonstrates this attitude toward God that he's not worshiping wealth or worried about famine because his heart is centered on God. And so what does Abram do? Well, the God-centered person trusts in God and prefers others over self. This is what is meant by the fact that Abram tells Lot to choose and make his choice. He now wisely initiates action to avoid a greater problem. He says, Lot, there can't be strife. And Abraham humbles himself and says, Lot, you choose. He willingly gives up his right and submits to others. And he says, you decide what is best. 
He's able to do so based on his trust in God's promise because his heart is oriented in heaven and it's centered on God. This is the God-centered life of worship. This God-centered life of worship is able to release the things of this world and behave in a way that demonstrates an absolute confidence in the God we serve. Beloved, in what ways will your trust in God be tested this year? How many financial decisions will you make this year? I mean financial decisions not simply where you will work. I mean financial decisions about how long you'll work. And I don't mean retirement. How much time will you invest in your workplace chasing after the almighty dollar? And will that be what drives and motivates you? Or are there other things that you should consider? Because those aren't the most important things. What decisions face you this year about how you spend your time, the time that God will allow you this year? How will you invest that? A God-centered life of worship looks at that choice in a very different way, not how can I squeeze out of this thing everything I can get out of it, but how can I trust the Lord with it and acknowledge that this is an investment in His kingdom? There'll be choices about spiritual influence. We'll see this later in the life of Lot. Those are all very significant choices that lie before us. And it's the God-centered life of worship that informs our decisions about how we will live in the next year and what the ultimate outcome of those decisions will be. In contrast to this life that is centered on God, a life given to worship exhibited by Abram, we see a self-centered life of pleasure exhibited by Lot. The choice to live a self-centered life of pleasure. I don't think there's anyone here today that would say, well, yeah, this is my life. You may be living a life like this, but you're blind to it. We all are until maybe you bump up against somebody else that lives their life this way and it creates a lot of tension and a lot of trouble. But no one here today would admit, well, this is my life. However, I think we find in this text there are some indications that tell us, here's how you know if you're living this life. Here's what's under the surface of that. And there are three of them that I want us to point out through the life of Lot and ask yourself, Do these three ways of living life, do they characterize me? Am I living this self-centered life of pleasure? Let's note, first of all, beginning in verse 10, that the self-centered person reasons poorly. Chapter 13, verse 10, we read this, And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Very interesting phrase here. It says, Lot lifted up his eyes. Again, the writer of Genesis, Moses, assumes that you've read the whole book up to this point. 
And the first time we read that phrase is back in chapter 3 and verse 6. And it says that Eve saw that the fruit was good. It was through the, the eye gate that this temptation to make a choice that, that that choice was actually clouded by the perception of sight. And somehow it equated wrong reasoning. Eve made a choice based on poor reasoning, even as Lot will do here. He lifts up his eyes and he sees this. Now, I want us to note that Lot made a logical, material choice. Look, if you have herds, you need pasture, and you need water. And at this point, people still had memory of the garden of the Lord. That's the garden of Eden. It says this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and they had memory of this lush place that was in the south region toward the Dead Sea. And this was a very profitable place for a herdsman like Lot. If he wanted to gain in his wealth, this was the logical, material choice. But is that always the bottom line? Does prosperity or the bottom line always mean that's the most important thing to weigh? No. Because Lot made a tragic spiritual choice. We're told in verse 11 of chapter 13 that Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed eastward. Here's what's very interesting. If you read through the book of Genesis and you look up the word east, whenever the Bible talks about people traveling east, it's always in the sense of away from the Lord. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, they went east of Eden. People in Babylon, when they went to build the city, they traveled east and they built this tower and wanted to be a tower to the Lord. And here we have Lot who departs from Abram and he journeys east. It's like he's journeying away from the place of blessing because he is driven by his eyesight and what he sees is material prosperity. He separated himself from the godly place and the godly influence of his godly elder, Abram, and he situated himself toward an ungodly influence. If you look at verse 13, we're told that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And certainly you've heard this before, but there is a kind of movement in the text with regard to Lot. He moves his tent as far as Sodom in 1312. He's living in a tent outside of the city. The next time we read of him in chapter 14 and verse 12, Lot is living in the city. He's among the people. And by the time you get to chapter 19 and verse 1, we're told that Lot is sitting in the gate of the city. And the gate was the place where transactions took place, political and financial. And apparently Lot has some kind of standing in this city now where he has completely incorporated him into the culture of this wicked community. But all of this began with a choice that Lot made by seeing what would please him. And he moved in a wrong direction. The self-centered 
life of pleasure does not take spiritual realities into its calculus when it makes decisions. All decisions are material. All decisions are my own personal comfort. And this is what we read in the text. And the self-centered life is evidenced by its poor reasoning because it lacks proper values. It doesn't really know what is truly valuable. What was the ultimate draw of the cities of the plain for Lot? Certainly Lot had heard of the reputation. He knew of the wickedness there. He is a righteous man. And Peter tells us that his soul was vexed among those people. But I suggest to you that Lot loved Sodom and that plain and that place because in many ways his heart was like them. And what was that heart? Well, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, and by the way, there were three other cities, maybe there were four other cities of the plain, we think of of the wicked debauchery that is often associated with those communities. But what was the sin of Sodom? I want you to look with me at the book of Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel in the 16th chapter. Look at the 49th verse. God, in writing to his people in captivity, he tells them in Ezekiel 16 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Notice that God is equating his people in Jerusalem with Sodom because they've fallen that far. But notice what he notes here about Sodom's sin. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. When we think of Sodom, we think of the end of verse 50, the abomination, the vile sexual sin of Sodom. But what was at the heart of that? What lies at the heart of that is the pride. And how would you equate excess of food and prosperous ease? What is that pointing to? It's pointing to a self-centered life of hedonism a pursuit of pleasure over everything else. Because in pride, I am haughty, and I am the most important person, and therefore I need not submit to anyone else or any other God, as it were. My pleasures are foremost, whether they be sexual pleasure or pleasures of food or materialism, or whatever the case may be. And what God is striking at in the book of Ezekiel is what lies at the heart of the sin of Sodom. And when we read of Lot, we actually discover that Lot loved Sodom and what went on in Sodom because his heart was much like them, because Lot loved Lot. And that's what moved him toward Sodom. And that's what caused him to make these kinds of choices where he ended up sitting in the gate of Sodom. Sodom is a decadent culture that is steeped 
and hedonism, loving pleasure. Does that at all sound familiar? In fact, we're going to read, we probably won't read it, but you know the story in chapter 19 when God is about ready to destroy Sodom and rain down fire on this place. And Lot goes to his sons-in-law, those that were going to be marrying his daughters, and he says, flee, you've got to get out of here. God's going to burn this place. And we're told in chapter 19 and verse 14 that they thought he was joking. They laughed, you silly old man. Yeah, let's see that. That would be a good time. And all it tells us is that in a decadent culture that is steeped in hedonism, Everything is jesting. Everything is entertainment. Nothing's to be taken seriously. It's all a joke because it's all about me. And this is what was taking place in Sodom, and it's what led Sodom to live among those people. Perhaps the most devastating thing is that Lot fails as a man to do the right thing and provide and protect And instead, he gives himself to his self-centeredness, and the turmoil on his family is unimaginable. You see, the self-centered person creates turmoil for themselves and others. Look Look at Genesis 19. Genesis 19, verse 23, you know the story of the angels that come to warn Lot and get him out of the city, and Lot doesn't want to go, as it were, and he makes terrible choices again. But here in verse 23, we're told that the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Why did she look back? Because her heart was in Sodom. Now, she was responsible for looking back and having her heart there, but her husband didn't do her any favors. He didn't help her. He did not lead his family the way that he should have. She regrets the destruction of all this that she held to be so important. And because her affections are there, she longs for it, even as it's being destroyed before her eyes. At the very least, this tells us that if God says he will destroy something, we should bring our affections in line with his and not love it. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 17, when he's talking about the end time destruction, he talks about the flood, and he talks about the destruction of Sodom, and he's talking about what will happen in the end when he returns, and in the midst of that, he looks at his audience and he says, remember Lot's wife. In other words, don't set your affection on those things that God will ultimately destroy. Bring your affections in line with his. She tried to gain the whole world, and she lost her soul. Lot lost his marriage. Why? 
Do you think when Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom, he thought this would be the end? No, but he made a choice. And that choice is leading to this outcome in his life. Lot lost his marriage. He lost his wife. He lost his children. Look at chapter 19 and verse 12. The angels say to Lot in verse 12, these men say to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. There's what I referenced before. Those sons-in-law stayed in the city. And they were destroyed because Lot had, had no weight with them. They knew his heart. He had not lived a, a life of integrity before them. And so they didn't heed his words. And he lost these children. Some of them were destroyed with the city. But perhaps more egregiously, some were destroyed with the influence of that city. And we read in verses 30 to 36 of chapter 19 of Lot's daughters. Lot has stooped to the point where he's living in a cave, which was probably like a tomb. And he's living in there because he's afraid for his life. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. And Lot is in such a bad place. He gets so drunk that in two consecutive nights, he doesn't even recognize that his own daughters come in to have relations with him that they might conceive. Can you imagine getting to that point in life? Lot made a bad choice. And though he got those daughters out of Sodom, he never got Sodom out of those daughters. In the end, Lot nearly lost his own life. Look at chapter 19, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Can you imagine that? After all that he has seen, angelic visitors coming to him, telling him to flee and to leave, and he lingers. Why does he linger? I can't give this up. This is so important to me. What else will I live for? He's entrenched in his own self-centered way of thinking. And this lush land chosen by Lot would soon be consumed by fire and burned up entirely. And yet he lingers because his heart is there. The fact is, Sodom would have destroyed Lot if the Lord had not destroyed Sodom. And God was merciful to get him out of there. These are life choices. Two men, believing men, similar backgrounds, similar families, making what began at the beginning was a very simple choice, to the left or to the right. But behind those choices was a demonstration of heart. One was 
God-centered and focused on worship of God and trust in Him. The other was self-centered and focused on living for everything this world had to offer. And their ends are widely divergent. Beloved, there are many choices to be made in this year. The most important of those choices for you is who will you live for this year? Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you need to metaphorically do what Abram did and build an altar in your heart and come to the point where you're willing to say, God, I am tired of these life choices that have led me down a very difficult path. And by your grace and with your help, I want to return to the place of promise, a life centered on you, calling upon you that this year would be different. That this year I would live a life of consecration to you. These examples before us, one man lived in a city and sat in the gate. The other man, Abram, lived in a tent. But who would you rather be? One man, Lot, was vexed day in and day out with the corruption of his associates. The other man, Abram, would talk with God and commune with God in a desert. Who would you rather be? One man, Lot, tried to build himself a name by grasping at material things of this world. The other gave it all away. But God says, I know his name. And he has a great name because of his trust in me. Who would you rather be? Different choices, different destinies. One was God-centered, one was self-centered. That has made all the difference. So what choices will you make this year? And what will be the basis of those choices? I was speaking with someone recently. These are people that you don't know, so don't try to think who they are. They're not associated with this church. There were people who at one time professed to be believers, but were living in sin. They had made self-centered choices to live for themselves. And because of that, they were in a very, very hard position. Whenever you make selfish, sinful choices, oftentimes it backs you into a corner where your next choices are actually limited. And that was the situation that they were in. And I tried my best to steer them from God's word about what choice God would have them make now. What was the right thing for them to do, though very, very difficult. And I told them it's going to mean that they're simply going to have to make God the center of their life and trust him. And I read to them Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, know him. He'll make your way straight. 
Their path had become very crooked and difficult because of sin. And God says, trust me, I'll straighten it out. And they were faced with a choice. I don't know yet the choice that they'll make. But I thought about how many other choices like that are among our congregation. And you have choices before you. What will help you make the right choice? You need to look beyond what is on the surface and say, what's in my heart? Why do I want to make this choice? Am I really centered on who God is and willing even to sacrifice and live a life of worship? Or am I just seeking to please myself? Because the end of those choices, my friends, is very different. May God give us grace to choose to center our lives on him and worship him this year. Let's pray together.